All right, well, we've spent the, uh, the weekend talking about discipleship. Um, we had, what, the session on Friday and then two yesterday. And um, this message that I want to share with you this morning is uh, in, in many ways a continuation of that, but it's not so much didactic. It's intended to be preaching in orientation. And with that in mind, um, if you've got Bibles, hopefully you do. I know it's old school to carry one, but I'd like you to open with me to... I didn't touch anything. We should have done that sound check before we began. <laughs> Test 2-3. <two>, <laughs> All right, so we're going to open to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 18, reads this way, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This passage is very similar to another one that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 13, he says, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you, meaning to the Corinthians. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. This is the word of the Lord. Now, these passages are similar. They overlap. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but we read the Romans passage first because it's the later letter in terms of when Paul wrote these letters. It was near the end of his life that he wrote the book of Romans. He was going to be coming to the church of Rome, and it was not a church that he had planted. Someone else had gone before and had planted the Roman church. But it was a church that when he got there, he expected to find favor. And he was going to them as part of a wider expansion of his own ministry because he, had, he felt that he had somehow fulfilled the mandate that Christ had given to him in preaching the gospel in the eastern Mediterranean, which would have included Corinth. It was that whole area around the Adriatic Sea that encompasses the east coast of Greece, all of the west coast of Turkey, and the southeastern coast of Europe that today 
uh, we consider it to be part of Yugoslavia. Well, Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore, but the Serbia, um, all of the areas that were part of Macedonia, uh, all that area through there as you start moving into Eastern Europe, that had been where he had been laboring, but now he was expanding westward, and he even tells the Romans, although we didn't read it, he says, I'm planning to go to Spain. I'm going to pass through there on my way to the far west where no one has ventured so far. And in writing to the Romans, he said, I will not venture to speak of anything. To the Corinthians, he had said, I will not boast. Same idea, slightly different language. I will not venture to speak, I will not venture to boast of anything except, except this, what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. On this one point, Paul was willing to boast. He was willing to put his marker down and say, this is what God has done through my life. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. I wonder how many of us have something about which we can genuinely and legitimately, justifiably boast in the Lord. We've been talking about discipleship all weekend. Disciples, at the end of their life, should have something about which to boast in the Lord. Genuine boasting, not the puffed up flattery and nonsense that we see so commonly in church life today. He goes on, he says, The Lord has accomplished this through me by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. That's how he did it. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, most of us don't know where Illyricum is, but Illyricum was a Roman province, and if you go due north of what is today Venice, Italy, and you go into the eastern side of Switzerland and Austria, Central Europe. Paul says, from Jerusalem to Central Europe, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now what he's saying is, I took on the heart of the Roman Empire, and I preached the gospel in those lands where others had not done. And I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. This is what motivates me, this is my drive, this is my passion, this is my love and not where Christ has already been named, because even in Paul's day there were many other preachers, even in Paul's day there were many other apostles, even in Paul's day there were those who were doing what they did. We all know the name. well we maybe don't know their names, but we know there were twelve apostles. And we know that there were others who traveled around. Paul said to the Philippian church, whether from false motives or true, there are those others who preach the gospel out of selfish ambition and vain envy, but he said, whether from false motives or true, I simply rejoice that the gospel is proclaimed. He's thinking about all of that. He says, my ambition is to preach the gospel, but not where Christ is already named. Why? Lest I should be building on another one's foundation. I don't want to build where others have built. I want to go find fresh ground. I want to find fresh souls. I want to love those that have not yet been loved with the love of the Father. That's what he is saying to them. And then he says this, but as it is written... And this is really the, in French, the raison d'être, the reason, the very core, the nuclear fuel that drives him. Those who have never been told will see him. And those who have never heard, that they will understand. This is the heart of what Paul did. So he said he would only venture to speak of a few things in his life. 
that Christ had worked through him to bring these Gentiles to obedience. People who were far from God, people who were straying, who were wayward, who were worshiping idols, who were dying in their sins. But God had worked through him to bring them to a place of obedience. Their knees had bowed to him. And that this had been accomplished through preaching, i.e. the word, and through the power of signs and wonders by the Spirit of God, i.e. deed. He says word and deed in Romans 15. And he says this all was inconsistent. It was, it was aligned with, it was congruent with my desire to preach the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That I would cut a wide swath. That the gospel would be established. And you know, historians today will say, although Europe is no longer truly a Christian continent, they will say that the Christianization of Europe began with Paul in exactly what we are talking about right now. He took a continent and brought it to the feet of Christ. And his ambition, we usually think of that as a negative word, but he's saying that which really was my animus, that which drove me, was to preach the gospel in places where he was not named. And his whole motivation behind that was a prophetic word. A prophetic word that comes out of Isaiah 52, 15. That those who have never been told, that those who have never heard, would see and understand. See and understand. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's the title of this message. That they would see and they would understand. This summary of his life, as I've already said, is very similar to what he had written to the Corinthians. He and Timothy had come to them. And they were the first to go to Corinth with the Gospel of Christ. No one had been there yet when they went to Corinth. And Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, which I have now moved off of and need to go back to, Paul says, not only were we the first to come all the way to you with the Gospel of Christ, but indeed we have this hope. We have this hope, Corinthians. Remember, the church at Corinth was carnal. It was foolish. It was backward and wayward. This was not a discipled church. Paul said to the Corinthians, as you become disciples, this is what I hope will happen. I hope that as your faith increases, as it deepens, as it widens, our area of influence, our metron among you, will be greatly expanded. You will become co-laborers with us. You will partner with us in the work of the gospel so that all of Achaia, all of Macedonia, all of the Roman provinces, all the way up into the Balkans will be impacted by the power of the gospel through word and signs and wonders. That's what he said to the Corinthians. This is my expectation of you, Corinthians. Anything less than that is not enough. And he says, and I have this expectation with this objective that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Lands beyond you. Without boasting of work that's already been done in other areas of influence. As he said to the Romans, that I would not be found to be building on another man's foundation. There is a remarkable consistency between what Paul says to the Corinthians 
and then some years later to the Romans because the animus, the motivation, the fuel that drove it didn't change. It was that prophetic word that came out of the writings of Isaiah the prophet that they would see and they would understand. This is the heart of apostolic passion. This is the fire of an apostle. Oh, there's a lot of preaching on apostolic ministry today, but I don't hear much of this. This is the stuff right here. Paul was a pioneer, and he wanted to press into areas where others had not been and were not laboring. And we not only see his passion, we feel the heat of the fire inside of his soul, inside of his chest. We see Paul's why. I mentioned Simon Sinek during the weekend, and I talked about how Simon Sinek says, begin with why. Well, this is Paul's why. Paul lived with a promise in his mind and in his heart that those who have never been told of him will see him. And that those who have never heard of him will understand him. But to fulfill that why, to fulfill that passion, required seeking. It took a focused effort to go out, to insert himself into territories and among peoples who had not yet become the field of labor for others. It wasn't just going to fall off the turnip truck. It wasn't just going to fall in his lap. This was something that he was hard after. Now that promise, it fueled more in Paul's life than a hobby. For many today, Christianity is a hobby. It's a Christian, somewhat more sanitary version of the nightlife that they used to live. It's still rock music, it just maybe is a little less raspy. The church potluck has replaced going out to the bars and getting drunk. So instead we get overweight. And on it goes. This promise fueled more than a hobby for Paul. It fueled more than a commitment. It fueled more than a job. It actually fueled more than a lifestyle. What it did was it upended his life. And it created a way of life. And it didn't look anything like middle class life. Didn't look anything like the good life of the Mediterranean societies where he lived. Life at the beach, fresh fish, nice oysters, good wine. All these things were available, not unlike Australia. It fueled a way of life that sought to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by preaching with power. That's what it did in Paul. And it didn't just do it in Paul, it did it in those who came under his influence. We see that same passion in the life of Titus and of Timothy, with whom he wrote the second book of Corinthians. Now Romans 15, 18 to 20, the verse I started with, it's classically a missions verse. Many have quoted it seeking to motivate people to go to foreign lands to serve, to evangelize, to establish the church, and having said that, knowing that it's often used as a foreign missionary verse, I'm not going to talk about foreign missions. But I wonder, when we think about what Paul wrote to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, I wonder how many who've never been told, who have never heard, are within reach right now, today. 90% of your nation, 91 if you actually want to be very specific about it, 
90% of your nation, 22 million souls, are not Christian. At all. They have no God. Or if they do, it has a name like Vishnu, or Allah, or Buddha. Nine out of ten people that you see when you go down the street to the shopping center, just look around you and count them off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One of them might be a Christian, the other nine are likely not. Think about that. 90% of Australia is non-Christian. Not only that, the nations of the world are coming to this country. When I first came to Australia years ago, I would have said, and I don't mean this racially, I'm not a racist at all. I'm just telling you what I observed. This was a lily-white country. It was mostly Scotch and English, a few Irish, maybe a few Northern Europeans, but that was it. Today, you can go to any major city in Australia. There's only six of them anyway. You can go to any major city in Australia, and there's a distinct shift in what's going on with the demographics. That's not bad. It's just fact. So no racism here. But God is allowing the nations of the world to come here. And what that means is that absent something happening, that 90% is going to go to 92, then to 95, maybe to 98. And here's a, here's a thought. How many of them live within reach? How many have lived within, within, let's say, 10 kilometers of where we are sitting right now? Just draw a circle around this place. Well, if you go 10Ks, you might actually hit the coast, so you, you might be okay on the west, or the east, sorry. To me, the ocean's always on the west. But Draw the circle. Think of how many people live within, and if you don't like 10 kilometers, pick 15 or 5. I don't care, but draw the circle. 90% of the people in that circle are those who are the unreached. They are the ones about whom Paul was writing. You can say, well, Australia's been evangelized. Yeah, big deal. Because the reality is they don't go to church. Most of them, if they ever went, it was when they were baptized as an infant. And they left long ago. That's the reality. They don't watch it on TV. They're not watching it on YouTube. They don't know who Ken Fish is. They don't know who Kirk Delaney is. They don't know who Bill Johnson or Randy Clark are. They don't know who Matt Sorger is. They don't know who any of these people are. And not only that, they don't care. And you know why? Because they neither see nor understand. And the apostolic passion, we keep talking about an apostolic church. Well then let the passion come over you that the Apostle Paul carried. Let the passion that drove the Apostle into regions beyond, let that come over you. Because that's at the core of discipleship. Paul spoke of preaching and signs and wonders, but signs and wonders, the supernatural work of the Spirit in our day, I dare say this, I hate to say it, has almost become a parlor game. The supernatural works of the Spirit of God, they are not just for fun. They are strategic weapons in a wider strategy that people would see and understand. 
that we would carry the gospel into a dark and dying world because God so loved that world that He gave His only Son. Not only that whoever believes in Him would not perish and have eternal life, but that disciples who can do what He does, who are also willing to carry that burden, who are willing to go into that world, could carry out the same mission that he had during his lifetime and anything less than that isn't that and my friends we have settled for a whole lot less than that and that is why our discipleship as I said on the first night of this gathering that we had is like salt that has lost its saltiness and it is not worthy of anything except to be trodden underfoot and in fact that is what the nations of the world are doing right now they are wholesale disregarding the historic Christian faith. They are taking up position against the Christian faith. They have no fear of God. Why? Because the people of God have failed to live that life of a disciple. Now in Acts chapter 16, we have this, it's actually a longer passage, but because it's a Sunday morning sermon, I'm cutting it down. And I just want to look at starting at verse 6, Acts 16, 6. And it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, that's modern-day central Turkey, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us, because most of us don't know the map, but Asia was a Roman province. Think state, you'll be in the right zone. And they were coming... They were coming with the objective that they were going to revisit churches that they'd already started on Missionary Journey 1. This is effectively Missionary Journey 2, the very beginnings of it. And as they come up out of Antioch, which is Paul's home church in modern-day Lebanon, as they come up out of Antioch, they, they go into Turkey and they're trying to make a break to the southwest into this Roman province called Asia, but the Holy Spirit kept saying, no, no. No, don't go there, Paul. Don't go to the southwest. No. Did God not love the Asians? No. It wasn't time yet. God will put a calling. God will put a mission on a man or a woman. And so they were following the mandate of the Holy Spirit. They were forbidden to speak the word in Asia, just as Jesus had told His disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Go nowhere among the Samaritans. Not yet. It's for them too, but not yet. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Most of us don't know where that is. So having tried to break to the southwest, they now try to go to the northeast. And the Holy Spirit says, oh, actually here it says the Spirit of Jesus. But it's the same Holy Spirit, just a different nomenclature. So, can't go southwest, and we won't let you go to the northeast either. The northeast up here, this is the south coast of the Black Sea. And they're trying to... They're trying to get up into that region, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. What do we have here? We're being boxed in. We can't go back. That's where we came from. We can't go to the left. That's forbidden. We can't go to the right. That's forbidden. So we just keep going forward. That's what they're doing because they're boxed in by the Spirit of God. And so passing by Mysia, we went down to Troas. This is ancient Troy, site of the Trojan War. But even in Paul's day, it was ancient history. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. He was a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to the island of Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we remained in this city, the city of Philippi, for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Acts 16 provides a snapshot of discipleship in action. Paul had started out this trip to revisit churches that he had begun on missionary journey one with Barnabas. As he goes through the center of modern Turkey, he revisits the cities of first Derby, Derby, then Lystra, later Iconium. We don't know where these cities are. Well, we do if we look at a map, but most of us don't carry it in our head. We don't know where these cities are anymore, but they're right in the heart of modern Turkey, not far from Ankara. And when he got to Lystra and Iconium, he met a young man named Timothy. He was a Jewish man, and he had a Greek father, but his mother was Jewish. And Je Timothy became his disciple, as he called him later, his own true son in the faith. Paul, who had been discipled by Barnabas, was now becoming a discipler. And he picks up this young man, Timothy, and takes him along with him. Knowing that there would be trouble because he hadn't been circumcised, he circumcised him. I'm wondering what kind of Bible study that must have been. <laughs> At the end of which we get out the knife and say, Timothy, drop trout. But anyway, they got it done. You know, there's commitment and there's commitment. What's more committed to the bacon and eggs breakfast, the chicken or the pig that provides the bacon? That's what we're doing right here. Timothy is counting the cost of discipleship as he's doing his Bible study with his newfound friend. Just saying. You think you're paying a price. And together they began traveling and strengthening the churches. And it's an interesting thing. It says that as they traveled and did this, I made a big point on Friday night that the church was multiplying in Acts 6-7. Well, it says here that as they went about doing what they were doing, the church began to grow and their numbers increased daily. 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 Their numbers increased daily. This is the normal fruit of a discipleship culture increase what were the hallmarks of Paul's ministry during this leg of the journey well we talked about most of these when I laid out 30 points of discipleship yesterday I know everybody thought 30 points was a lot of points but nobody could really contend with them at the end because they are all of them biblical so here's a laundry list of things that Paul did as one who had been discipled and who was now discipling with predictable results. Number one, he cared for the converts that were there. Remember what we talked about with establishing those who have been converted. Number two, he followed them up. 
We talked about follow-up and how that's an important uh, discipline, practice that we want to build into the lives of those who are becoming disciples. He was proactive in reaching out to them. We talked about how we want people who are proactive. He sought to establish them in the faith and to strengthen them in that faith, meaning ground them so that the initial questions in their mind, the unsettled business that was left over from when they prayed the prayer, when they were converted, when they'd been encountered by the Spirit of God, when the Word had come to them, now that's all settled down, and He strengthens them, He builds them in the things of God. It says also that He sought to bring them to maturity. Not only that, when they get to Troas, Paul is obviously manifesting a life of prayer. He had a vision in the night. That means he wasn't asleep, he was awake, suggesting he was probably praying through the night. That's a serious prayer life. And he had the ability to hear God. How did he hear God? In this case, it was a vision. It was a man dressed like a Macedonian saying, come over and help us. I actually believe that man to have been Titus. I believe he saw Titus in a vision, but it's too much to go into right now to try and prove it. And if you don't agree, it's fine. You can throw it in the bin. He was willing to obey leading that was contrary to his own ideas. That's, that's an aspect of a disciple because it allows God to override your presuppositions. Or as Bob Jones would have said when he was alive, it allows him to deal with your stinking thinking. Paul wanted to go into Asia, but the Spirit of God said no. Paul wanted to try to go into Mysia and Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus said no. So he listened instead of fighting it. And when he got to Troas, he got this calling. He was decisive when he understood the mind of God. He knew right what to do. The next morning, they broke camp, got on a ship, and sailed away. That was it. No waiting. Not only that, when he got to Philippi, he let ministry moments happen all around him. He wasn't so focused on where he was going. He was letting God envelop his world and create a reality around him that we call kingdom outbreak. First thing he did, he goes and looks for a place to pray. They go down by the river and they run into this woman, Lydia. She's selling purple cloth. That means she dealt with wealthy clientele because purple was for the rich in those days. And she was from Thyatira. He goes down to the river so he can pray with his traveling companions. And they, you know, you'd think, well, can you just leave us alone now? We want to have our prayer meeting. But suddenly he realizes, ah, divine opportunity. He begins talking to Lydia and it says the Lord opened her heart. She feared God, but she wasn't converted. There's a big difference. Let me say that again. She feared God, but she wasn't converted. There is a big difference. It is not enough just to believe in God. You must place your faith into Christ. And so Paul speaks to her about the living Christ, and she believes in his converted and her friends. What's he doing? Starting a church at an unexpected moment. Maybe it started as a house church because she wanted them all to come to her house and stay. So there was probably an initial gathering of just a handful of people. Not long after this, they're walking through Philippi, said they stayed there many days. I don't know how long that is, but it's many days. They're walking through Philippi, and they pick up a trailer. These men are servants of the Most High God. They are telling you the way to be saved. These men are servants of the Most High God. They are telling you the way to be saved. What happens? Come out of her. Boom! She gets delivered of an evil spirit. 
So first his prayer meeting gets interrupted. Now he drives a demon out on the fly. Uh-oh, the slave girl's owners aren't real happy with this. There's a riot that breaks out. This is what you call an uncomfortable lifestyle. He's right at the center of the riot and not as the provocateur. The authorities grab him and they beat him with rods. That'll ruin your day. What does it look like to be a disciple? Remember when I talked about being willing to endure hardship? Being willing to lay down your presuppositions about how you will live, what your lifestyle will be? Here it is, writ large. Sucks to be you, Paul. Throw you into the inner prison. We'll put you in the stocks. And you know what Paul does in response to all of that? He doesn't sit there embittered saying, I wasn't treated right. I'm a Roman citizen. They shouldn't have done that to me. I'm going to call Caesar. I'm going to appeal. I'm going to have these men's heads. No, it says about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. You know, in the book of Philippians, where this happened, in the book of Philippians, you know what theme runs through that whole book? Rejoicing and thanksgiving, always. Those are the key themes in the book of Philippians. And that's what Paul was living out in the midst of affliction and tribulation and adversity. And while they are singing, instead of becoming embittered, suddenly an earthquake hits. Love and life. <laughs> this isn't just some little minor earthquake. This is enough that it knocks all the jail cells open. All the chains fall off. And the jailer looks around, he goes, all right, that's it. Pulls out his own sword. He's about to cut his own throat. Why? Well, because when you're a jailer under Roman rule, if the, jail, if the jail bait escapes, it's your life for theirs. So he figures, I'd rather kill myself than do what they're going to do to me. They might crucify me. They might burn me alive. They might flay me, boil me in oil. I'll just end it right now. Paul goes, stop! Now what should he have been doing? But he doesn't. He stops. Why? Because the love of Christ compels him. And so he says, don't, no, no, we're all here. The jailer brings him home. He's already led Lydia and her household to the Lord. Now he leads the jailer to the Lord and his whole household. Do you see the life of a disciple being lived out here? In season and out of season, whether he's prepared or not, when his back is split open with a beating and he's bleeding, he's still ready to preach the gospel. When he's been through a riot, he's still preaching the gospel. He's looking around him. He's thinking about his environment and all those who need to see and understand the Lydias, the jailers of the world. Paul's life was decidedly unconventional, but so were his results. And he was willing to live this way because he had as his why that those who had never been told and those who had never heard would see and understand. This is at the heart of discipleship. It is the nuclear fuel that runs the whole enchilada. Passion births enablement. Passion births enablement. There's something about the way God has designed the universe that that for which you are impassioned, it will call out to God Himself. And if your life is aligned with Him, if you're living as a disciple, if you are obedient, 
If these things are so, God will bring about the passion that is in your heart. Paul's passion was that they would see and understand. And because of that passion, the Holy Spirit Himself had corralled Paul and said, No, you can't go to the southwest. No, you can't go to the northeast. You just go forward. He gets down to Troas, and when he gets to Troas, God says, Nice work, Paul. You listen to me. Now I'll unfold the next chapter for you. He didn't know what he was going to find when he got to Troas. He just knew he had nowhere else to go. And when he gets to Troas, he has the vision of the Macedonian calling. That takes him across into Europe and God gives him a continent. And it was because of his passion that burst the divine enablement when God opened the next window of revelation, the next chapter of Paul's life, the next phase to which he was going to go. That all happened because Paul was living a discipled life. And he lands in Philippi, and he starts the first church in Europe. Now all weekend we've spoken about discipleship, and most of what we've focused on has been the mechanics, the what of discipleship. Got some good feedback on it. I guess I did okay with the teaching. But today I want to move off of the what, and I want to focus on this thing that I've already told you is the why. Begin with why. That's what Simon Sinek says. I want to highlight the why. And here's why I want to highlight the why. Most of us have lost the why. Where there is no vision, the people perish. When people do not understand what is the heart of discipleship, they view it merely as rules and regulations, as things they have to check the box on, things they have to go through it becomes very legalistic and formulaic and there is no life in it, there is no power in it. But when your why is something bigger and more strategic that they would see and obey, that the gospel would be preached with power and that signs and wonders would confirm it, that we would bring about the obedience of the Gentiles, well then suddenly all that discipleship becomes like, well, the basic training that a, that a raw recruit goes through, whether they're recruited to play football or join the military, it's all the same stuff. You've got to be ready for action. That's what discipleship fundamentally is about. Now, I already called this question, but I'm going to bring it up again. How many people are around us within 10 kilometers of where we sit? Just draw the radius. What's the formula? Pi r squared. That's the area of a circle. So. 314 square kilometers around us contains I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people but 90% of them do not see and do not understand I want to challenge you today I want to I want to give you a throwdown I want to put something in front of you that I hope will cause discomfort I want it to irritate you and here it is Pretend for just a moment that no other church exists in this community. Now, I know there are other churches in this community. I'm not a fool. But pretend for a moment that there are no other churches. Or, if you don't like that one, you can't get that far with it, pretend for a moment that all the churches around here have not grasped the heart of the apostolic passion. The fire that I've been talking about that drove Paul to regions beyond 
Pretend for a moment that they don't understand that. Maybe it's been taught out of them. Maybe the commentaries they read are too formulaic. Maybe they're focused on something different. Signs and Wonders has become something of a parlor game. Christianity has become a hobby. There's a lot of reasons why they may be lacking in that passion, but just pretend for a moment that this is the only church in all of northern Brisbane that gets this. I don't know if that's right or not. We don't want to be arrogant and presuppose that it's right, but pretend for a moment, go with me on this, pretend for a moment that it's true. Then what would it look like for Vineyard Pine Rivers, this congregation, you people right here, what would it look like for you to take as your commission that all of Lawton would see and understand? Every single person, especially that 90% who have no clue, that all of Pine Rivers, the whole Shire, would see and understand. What would that look like? How would a discipled church make that a strategic objective here on the north side of Brisbane? What would it look like if we said Pine Rivers isn't big enough? Because it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. So let's just take the whole northern side of Brisbane, everything north of the river. What would that look like? How would a church like this organize itself, adopt a discipleship culture, take on the competencies that I taught on this weekend and say this is this one thing I do what would it look like if we said all of Brisbane north and south of the river how would that go how would we do it with the people we have well I'll tell you how you would do that in one sentence there's a lot more to it than one sentence you would do what Paul did with the Corinthians you would say as you mature I would expect you to partner with us so that our sphere our metron of influence would increase and grow but it, we're talking about a lifestyle shift now we're talking about more than just believism we're talking about more than church as a hobby we are talking about taking this on as the Commission with the understanding that we were born for a time like this we are taking on what it says of David when he had finished God's purposes in his generation, then he died. But apparently God's purposes are not yet finished, and so he has a purpose for you and for... Well, not you, you don't live here. You, and you, and you, and you. He has a purpose for you because you're sitting here today. What would it look like if this church said... No one else is doing it, so we're going to do it. We're going to own Queensland for the kingdom of God. Not that it's ours, because it's not. But in terms of taking responsibility, of taking ownership, of reaching into regions beyond, of going to funky little places like Charters Towers, of extending up to Cairns, maybe even Cooktown, of going into Mount Isa, of seeing the gospel propagate in that way. What would that look like? It would only work if you used what Paul planned to do with the Corinthians. As you grow and mature, we raise a culture, we raise a community, we raise a network of people, and with that the gospel goes forth, and that will only work in a discipleship culture. That is why we have to have a discipleship culture. Now, I deliberately picked this topic for this reason. Everybody right now is talking about apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets. I don't hear a lot about apostolic strategy and apostolic passion. So I thought, all right, if everyone's going to talk about apostles and prophets, let's really talk about apostles and prophets. 
Because this right here that I'm telling you, this is the stuff. This will, this will take the rest of your life. Some might not stay here. They might get sent to other lands and countries. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch. But for starts, bloom where you're planted. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, Lawton, Pine Rivers, North Brisbane, all of Brisbane, Queensland. We could go to Australia too, but I think Queensland's a big enough goal right now. So we've spoken of discipleship at length this weekend. Without the why, we've discussed mechanics. But if you don't grab the why, if the apostolic fire doesn't come to your heart, everything that we've said and shared will fade away just like every other church seminar you've ever been to. It'll be water poured out on the ground just like when David's three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines. But if the passion that fueled Paul becomes our passion, then a great harvest, I'll even dare call it a great awakening, awaits us. And it's right outside those screen doors. Out where the flies are. Out where the heat is. Out where right now people are watching the footy and drinking beer. The world is at our doorstep waiting to see and understand. That's the title of this message, See and Understand. The Lord Jesus has no other plan. I said that the first night. Discipleship is His plan. Worldwide propagation is His plan. We change our focus from being inward to outward. We adopt the competencies of discipleship. We have the Holy Spirit upon us. This cannot fail. Oh, it'll cost. Cost Paul a lot. Got his back laid open in Philippi, right in the center of a riot. But that passion that was in him was fulfilled. Jesus has no other plan. There's a saying that was popular in my country about 15 years ago. No one says it anymore. Maybe it'll come back around. But, and it's simply this. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? I say it's time to go forth and make disciples. Let's take a city. Let's take a nation. Australia, you can have your revival. Let them come. Amen.